Hello, you are listening to Fairy and Fantasy Class Number Ten. Today we start Chaucer's Wife of Bath's Tale and take a look at how Chaucer messes with the loathly weighty story paradigm that we saw in Dame Ragnall. Okay, I want to start with the introduction that the Wife of Bath gives uh, about the fairy context, right? She explains that this story that she's telling is a story that happened many hundred years ago and that this story couldn't happen nowadays, right? What did you notice there? What did you think was interesting or important about the Wife of Bath's sort of lead-in there? Yeah, Taylor? Uh, she implies that the world of fairies is incompatible with uh, religion that's contemporary to that time. Yes, specifically friars, right? Uh, and this is, friars are kind of a running joke uh, in Chaucer, um, but uh, the friars were... Basically, they were a group of wandering monks. Um, Instead of just cloistering themselves away from the world as monks did, friars also took (coughs) vows, but then they went wandering around uh, uh, among the people. She is speaking explicitly of limiteurs, meaning begging friars, Uh, friars who have taken a vow of poverty. They can't own anything, which means they can't, theoretically, even carry anything with them. So their next meal is, is always sort of at the generosity of whomever they meet. So that's the sense in which, that's the, the context in which they beg. Um, and so, yes, she jokes that the, the, the countryside is so full of friars nowadays, wandering everywhere and blessing everything and muttering their holy fingers that, uh, that there's, there's, there are no more elves anymore, right? Um, for there, as, uh, there where the elf used to walk, now you see a friar instead. Um, so I agree, one implication, at least one potential implication, is this incompatibility. Um, I am not sure that it's necessarily Christianity writ large that she's putting uh, in, in uh, opposition to, to fairies here. Um, it's specifically the friars. And here, I want to be careful, because on the one hand, I don't want to encourage you to be entirely dismissive of what she's saying, but at the same time, she's also making fun of the friars throughout all of this, and I would rank that. Um, I mean, if somebody asked me, like, what do you think is the main emphasis of these first, this first group of lines, I would put making fun of friars pretty high on that list. It's not the only thing that she's doing, and it's not, so, I mean, I don't want to just sort of dismiss it as merely a joke, but, but there is a joke here, and I want to make sure that we get that, um, because I think it does influence how we, um, how we read the rest of it. Jordan? I think it's probably that fire, and, and, you know, presumably, you know, the, the fires go out of one of countryside. Presumably, the isolation, the, the, the isolation of the isolated circumstances, which you would normally meet fairies. Normally, when, you know, Ophio goes riding off into the woods and meets Tremor, if some fires are fires bumbling around, like, wanders from the private lines, it's going to be kind of awkward, so she's not going to show up if there's fires all over the yeah, I mean, it's true that one of the things that she does seem to suggest is just the sheer quantity of friars. You can't any longer go and be all alone by yourself in the woods, which is where you meet fairies, right? Because if you go there, what will you find? Friars. I mean, the place is just lousy with friars, right? So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of the joke. Uh, that, like, you, just can't, you can't, like, can't even walk out the door without tripping over a friar these days, right? So, so yeah, so the fairies, there's no more room for them. Um, yeah, and, and of course, what other things does she seem to be suggesting or insinuating about friars? By the way, this also, um, 
the, the, the line I'm thinking of here can also serve as a kind of uh, uh, warning about reading Middle English editions. Um, in Middle English manuscripts, there is little or no punctuation in the actual original writing. The punctuation that you see, including especially quotation marks, but even things like end marks, are almost all inserted by editors um, in order to try to, make, to help make sense of it for the benefit of modern readers. And I think, I, I think there's actually, I, I disagree with the punctuation placement uh, in one place here. Um, this is line, uh, let's see. Hmm? Yeah, it's the one, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, starting at 878. Women may go new southly, open dune, in every bush or under every tray. There is none other incubus but hay. And hey, no wool don't hem but dishonour. That last line being deliciously ambiguous. Um, he will not do them but dishonour. You could take that, he, he will not do them dishonour at all of any kind. And you can also interpret it as he won't do anything but dishonour them. Um, it's, it's, it's a decidedly and pointedly ambiguous statement. But, but the punctuation there is the, is the punctuation between... 878 and 879. Um, in every bush, uh, women may go new southly, up and down. In every bush or under every tray, there is none other incubus but hay. Um, this, this, those, those two things are clearly strongly connected there. Uh, and in the other edition, I think, is in the, uh, Jordan, in the version that you have there, that is the one that I got the PDF from, um, didn't it put a period there between? Yes, yes, exactly. In this edition, they put a period after tree, um, where I think it very clearly does not belong. That is, uh, women may go southly up and down in every bush or under every tree. We're not talking about the women going up and down every tree uh, and in the bushes. Uh, We're talking about the friars. In every bush and under every tree, there is none other incubus but he. but the friar. That is, you can't find any other incubi, any other spirits with shady, off-color intentions towards women. Uh, none except friars themselves, that is. Um, and of course, here you can see the kind of appeal that uh, the wife of Bath is making to stories like Sir Orpheo, where you've got you know, fairies coming and ambushing women under trees and taking them away to live with them and stuff. That, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore because now under that same tree, you know, if you go to your random imp tree now in, in, in these modern times in the late 14th century, you'll just find friars. Um, though again, with that ambiguous statement that perhaps you won't actually be better off. But um, it certainly does also give this sense of Antiquity. A long time ago, there were, there were lots of fairies. We don't see them much nowadays, not because we now know that they don't exist. There's not this, like, now we sophisticated modern people, needless to say, we don't believe in fairies anymore. That's not at all the sense of this introduction, but rather, times have changed. The fairies have left. The friars, for various reasons, have driven them away. Uh, and now, and now there's, no more, there's no more fairies. But... Back in the days when there were fairies, what happens? What are some of the differences that you, that you noticed? How, how, I mean, there's some major ones to start off with, right? <coughs> Thinking about this and Dame Ragnall. Okay? 
One thing I thought was really interesting was the fact that she said a, a long time ago, because every other time we assume that that the tale takes place in the same time the fairies do. So there's this separation where, oh, time has passed and we can, we can learn from this lesson. It's not, oh, this happened yesterday. Let me tell you about this cool story. Good, good. Yeah, I agree. That, that sense of ancientness to the story is... I mean, there is some indication of that in some of the prologues of the other versions. That is, you know, there's this lie that's been sung for a long time, but it's not that same sense of, now we shall go back in time to those days of yore which were different from now. And I agree that does, that does give a different uh, kind of impact to the story. What else? What else do you notice? Taylor? Fairies don't necessarily have to be rich in this. Good. she's... Two differences between this Ragnall and the other Ragnall is that she's both old and poor, and it says neither in the version. Yeah, I mean, we're told that, I mean, we, we get the, like, mentions of her gray hair, but that's when she, mostly when it's dis- describing uh, her mustache. So, uh, I mean, like, and there, like that's in the Tusks passage, you know, which sort of makes it sound like the bristles of a boar rather than uh, the hair on her head. Um, but, yeah, certainly that was, not, that was not emphasized. We are given sort of these two extra grounds for disapproval or, or dislike uh, on the part of the night that we didn't get before. And I agree, we get very few, not none, but we get very few of those kinds of cues that we've been expecting. We don't get the, the description of the richness of her, of her stuff. We don't see any of that. Uh, he does meet her in the woods, so that's sort of the one clearly consistent thing, but um, we're not given many of those direct cues. Now, we are given some other cues, Right. That is, to, to, to understand that she's a fairy. We should realize that pretty clearly. How? Why? We don't see jewels and wealth and shining light. But what do we see? How does he meet her? In the woods. In the woods. That's our first hint. And not just in the woods. She's under an entry. Yeah, there's, 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 she, she is under a tree. And who else is there? ladies. Briefly. Yeah, good. They're, they're ladies. There are a bunch of at least 24, probably more, uh, dancing in a ring. And he come, comes in to see them dancing, and as soon as he goes in, they disappear. Except there she is. She remains. Right? And that's about as clear a, you know, fairy warning as you can get. Um, that strange ladies dancing in the woods who disappear when you approach them Ah, that's a pretty sure sign that you're dealing with fairy here, right? So when he meets her, he's got... So, so I agree, though we see some definite differences and we're, we're missing some of the cues that we've seen, which I think is interesting, especially, Taylor, as you pointed out, with her poverty and stuff, right? We don't, it, it would be different if she were, just as in Dame Ragnall, enormously ugly but also really beautiful, so you get the kind of mixed cues there, right? I'm kind of, I'm in one sense desirable, but in, in, in another sense really repulsive. With her, there's nothing desirable about her externally, right? She is not only ugly, she is also poor and apparently old too, right? So on a purely superficial, physical level, there's nothing attractive about her, and I think that that is a really important shift here and really sets up... Um, the long sermon she's going to give him in the second half uh, of the story, which we'll talk about next time. Jordan? Another big difference is the knight, you know, not named as Sir Gawain. But if she is purely repulsed outwardly, he is purely repulsed inwardly. <laughs> go back on his he, 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 He's admittedly in, in many tales of, of you know, Zira, 
the way people mentioned would not have been as time had gone. I, I believe you trust us you commented that an equivalent story happened in Malawi and and they're just like, You go tell them have a song. Yeah. So it's yeah. not quite the stove it was today, but it's still in, in the context of the story, it's not quite a stove. He does something that against the law of the king. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think that, that both of those things are very fair to point out. Of course, the, the difference with the, the rape as the setup to this story puts the whole thing in a very different light and certainly introduces us to our knight in a very different way than we get introduced to Sir Gawain uh, in, the, in the other version. Um, but I do want to pick up uh, on what Jordan was saying there because I do think that it is interesting. Um, it is true in many medieval romances we get this kind of rape happening, um, especially if it's a knight who is raping a peasant woman usually there are not serious repercussions to the knight in question. The question is just whether he will, uh, you know, claim the, the, the illegitimate son, usually, uh, that he has begotten on the peasant woman. Um, and Jordan points to a story in, uh, in Sir Thomas Mallory where King Pellinor does this. And it's, it's actually played off as a comic scene where this cowherd uh, who looks comically exaggeratedly peasant-like. He's all like squat and stocky and bent over and, and, and yokel sounding. And he comes into Arthur's court and he says, Sire, I've got this problem. I have this one son. I've got like, I don't remember, 12 sons or something he's got. He's, he's got a whole bunch of sons. And it's like, but, but my oldest son, I just, I, 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 I can't do anything with him. He just won't herd cows. All he wants to do is like watch knights fight and, and like, you know, he really wants to be a knight. But I'm a cowherd. He's a cowherd. I don't know what to do. And so they're like, bring him in. So he brings in all of his sons and he's got like 11 sons who are all like short, stocky and bent over just like him in this one like six foot four, butch, manly, uh, you know, dashing fellow. And everyone's like, hmm, hang on a second. You're like, can we talk to your wife for a minute, right? So his <laughs> wife comes in and is like, so uh, is there anything you'd like to tell us? And she's like, well, it's true that just before I married my husband, I was raped by a knight. Uh, and this, this one was that. And they're like, oh, who was it? And she's like, it was King Pelinor. And they're like, Pelinor, you dog, right? And he's like, yeah, well, okay. And, and it turns, and so he's Sir Tor. And they're like, oh, no, we will knight you because you're King Pelinor's son. And he becomes the knight of the round table and, uh, and you know, is part of the story. Well, not a huge part of the story, but anyway, he's sort of a, an accepted knight thereafter. And everyone, you know, like has a good chuckle on the cowherd and his other squat peasant sons go home and live happily cowherd lives while Sir Tor becomes a knight. That's a more sort of common kind of way that you would expect this sort of plot to enter into a medieval romance. It's unusual that such a big deal is made of this, that the response to this knight's little horrible act of self-indulgence, lapse in judgment, you know, it's a more generous way to treat it, is actually treated, I mean, it is, it, it is a capital offense. Uh, and he is, going, he is ready to be, I mean, he is set to be executed for doing this. So the fact that there is such an outcry is, is unusual and noteworthy in this poem, and I think that that's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, one thing, though, that we just went by really quickly, Jordan mentioned it, but I think it's, it's, it's worth emphasizing, the knight is not named, right? What, what's the impact of that? Uh, sort of like with a lot of other fairy tales, if or folklore, if, if the character's not named, it could be anyone then. It, so he can be any knight. Yes. Good. It, it, it's a very different thing to say, I'm going to tell a story 
another story, one of the many stories about Sir Gawain and his awesomeness, right? There's a whole book of those. But it's a very different thing to say, I'm going to tell a story about Joe Knight, right? Because, yes, that does sort of make it more applicable. This is not about anyone. This is not a legend. Remember, in Dame Ragnar, we're not even told that that's, a, that's a, a story primarily about Sir Gawain. That was an Arthur story. This is not an Arthur story at all. He barely features in this story. But, of course, it's also not a Sir Gawain story. Part of this, of course, does detach it from the great heroic tradition of Sir Gawain, which is quite popular by this time. Um, I mean, you could tell this version with Sir Gawain, but it would be a bit of a harder sell on people who were already big Gawain fans to start off with uh, sort of the proper mindset um, towards this night. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that sense of general applicability, I think, is important. Um, I'm a little rusty on my chaucer. Does she tell this in response to the knight's tale, or where is his tale in <clears throat> The knight's tale is previous to this, but it's well previous to okay. this. Um, so it's not directly in response to it. Um, yeah, yeah. She's sort of touching off uh, discussion of women and of marriage, which will sort of continue for a little while. Um, not to mention a response from the friar, though he gets really mad at the summoner and the two of them kind of snipe at each other and sort of briefly forget the wife of Bath and then people come back to the wife of Bath story later on. Um, but it's also hard to draw too many conclusions from the ordering of Chaucer's stories as it seems pretty clear that the final order was not really fixed and fully decided upon. So anyway, um, not in direct response is the shorter answer to that. Um, yeah, Christine? Oh, I was going to say maybe his lack of a name might be, or might make it easier for the reader to condemn his actions. Like like you said before, like it was un- it's unusual. I mean, not that I had known until you said so, that it was unusual um, for them to sort of condemn it in this manner. And I suppose without giving him some sort of proper identity, it's even more easy to condemn this character. Yes, definitely. I mean, it would have been, as in that sense, is that, that's exactly the sense in which, in which it would have been a harder sell, I think. If, if the story, if the premise of the story is supposed to be, at first, we have this man who, who perpetrates this horrible outrage against a woman um, and is roundly condemned and everyone's looking down on him, if he's Sir Gawain from the beginning at least a large contingency of the audience is going to be like, oh, but Sir Gawain is awesome, right? There must be some explanation. I mean, there's going to be resistance to that. So I agree, that clearly kind of pushes that aside, and we have Knight. The only thing we know about him is that he is, he is a rapist and rather despicable. I mean, that's how we're introduced to him. Um, now, what else? How else does the rape... Think about the difference between how the rape functions in the story and the way that the story was set up in Dame Ragnall. That is, the function, the purpose of the rape here is that's how he ends up getting sent on the quest. The question that, the quest that he goes on and the question he's supposed to answer is the same, right? What do women most desire? And we find the answer is almost the same, right? So, but the setup is so different in the previous one than this one. More on that. More, more comparison and contrast. What was the effect in the previous one? Yeah, yeah. Marta, go ahead. Well, in the previous story, it was very much, um, oh, I'm hunting in the woods. Okay. Oh, there's a skull. 
That's an interesting question. That's as good a question as any. And this one, it seems to have more pertinence to the knight himself, because you just raped that lady. You should learn some more things about women in general. So. Yes, yes, excellent, Marta. I think that's really important. The context of the quest in the first version is just, this is, a, I shall set you an impossible task, right? You shall find out what all women most desire. Ha, 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 ha. You'll never do that, right? Um, and as you say, it has nothing to do with Arthur. It has nothing to do with... Um, now, we find in the end it does have something to do with Gawain. That is, it does set up Dame Ragnall's um, unbewitching at the end. But it certainly has nothing to do with Arthur and no pertinence to him. It is a, an almost random very difficult, if not impossible, quest that he sent on. Here, its relevance is clearly pertinent. And just in case we might miss that, just in, in, in case we might not think about, hmm, isn't it interesting that this guy who had obviously so little regard for the desire of women that he completely, that, that he just s- privileged his desires over hers to such an extent that he just up and raped her in the bushes, um, it's obviously relevant. Now he's spending a year and a day going around finding out what women want, right? Just in case we weren't thinking that already, we get the whole trial scene with the queen. Right? The queen's going to take this over. He's just going to be executed. Arthur's like, okay, he broke the law. That's a, that's a capital crime. Execution, we're done here, right? And it's Guinevere who says, no, no, please, uh, let us handle this. And then she's the one who sets the quest, which puts it in an explicitly, well, at least educational if not actively rehabilitatory, is that the adjective? Rehabilitatory, yeah? That'll work. In an explicitly, an educational, if not an explicitly rehabilitatory context, right? Um, You had this problem, this is what you need to do now, right, to help you with your little complete disregard for women problem, right? Aaron? What I found interesting, um Gawain did not seem to hear the answer. He did not find out the answer from Ragnall. She just told Arthur, who went and told her brother. So he comes to the conclusion on his own in, in, when, they're in their, when they're on their marriage bed. But this night, the nameless night, he's told that. And then what I find funny is he kind of forgets about what he just heard and is complaining and like I don't I don't want to marry you until he gets to the until he gets to the marriage bed and then is like oh yeah you did tell me some pretty good advice and I guess I'll take it and yeah your choice yeah yeah it that that is a really interesting difference and I hadn't really been thinking about that but you're right Gawain does apply you know at sort of the 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 Crucial moment of the story. At the climax of the story, uh, Sir Gawain does apply the answer to his situation and do that appropriately. But you're right, he has very little reason to do that. He wasn't the one being given the answer. He wasn't the one who was supposed to... I mean, he, he did go and, like, interview the people and etc. cetera. But, uh, but it wasn't his quest. And so I agree it's, it's a little bit more explicitly a set of... It's all, I mean, we don't, we don't know that Guinevere and the loathly lady in this text are working together, but it's almost as if they could be, right? Step one in your educational process is to find the answer to this question, which you've searched around for a long time, and now I'll tell you the answer. Step two is, now it's time for you to apply it. Now I shall put you in a situation where you will be compelled to to, to apply that. And he, 
as you say, totally fails that, right? Seems absolutely to make no connection between that. And it's, the contrast is really pointed, right? I mean, he comes in and he's very confident and he, he really sort of, I know the answer, right? I am, I am now fully aware of what women most desire and I shall tell you, no problems, here it is. And they're like, yep, yep, that's the right answer. But then instantly shows that he's not really internalized this at all yet, right? But notice also the, the woman who, of course, also doesn't have a name, hence why I'm having to call her the woman or the old woman or the hag or the ugly woman or something because we don't know what she's called either. But anyway, she also is a little bit more theatrical in setting this up. right? I mean, we're not told what the answer is at first. She just whispers it in his ear, and then he declares the answer. And she doesn't make him promise up front. Remember, Ragnall made, made Arthur promise up front before she even gave him the answer. I'm, I want to marry Gawain. And gives him permission to go and ask Gawain first and everything else so everybody knows what's going to go on. So when she shows up, though he's never seen her before and he doesn't perhaps even know the answer, it's not even clear. Nevertheless, uh, he's ready to do it. He knows what's coming. She springs the whole marriage thing on him, Right? Um, in front of witnesses, so that he can't get out of it, which also perhaps suggests what she anticipated his reaction to be, right? Um, But yeah, I think that that's a very pointed situation that she places him in and does seem to be part of that sort of educational process. Um, What else? Other things about the loathly lady in this story that you notice? Or don't notice, perhaps. Jordan? She's another one of the people that you can make do what's wrong with you. The best thing you can uh, ask her to do is clean my toilet. She's like, okay. Yes. I feel, I, I feel a weight of insubstantial. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. What's the worst that could happen, right? Yeah, no, uh, making rash promises of this kind, um, like the fairy king did in Sir Orfeo, um, rarely works out well. Um, yes, yes. Now, of course, he had no choice, and she knew full well he had no choice, right? Um, so this is not just a rash vow made in, in thoughtlessness and impetuousness, but nevertheless, a rash promise. But did you notice what we don't get with the loathly lady, Matt? Oh, we don't get the long flower description of the loathly Yeah, we get nothing. We get nothing. We get, like, one line. Wow, she was ugly. Anyway, moving on, Right? <laughs> So, as Taylor said, we get no riches, we get no description of her, of her horse and her clothes, but we get no description of her. We're told that she's really ugly, and his response seems to suggest that he finds her completely repulsive, though, again, as Taylor pointed out, not only on that one ground, and that's never what he says. He's, he doesn't ever just say, like, the problem is you have tusks, and that's disgusting. He, instead, he's like, you're ugly and old and poor. So you're not only repulsive, you're also beneath me. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's, you know, he talks about being disparaged, right? Which, which means he's, he's like the fairy king in Sir Orfeo. He considers himself and her a sorry couple. This doesn't fit. This is not suitable that you should be married to me. I am so noble and so lofty. And you are so ugly and old and poor. I'm marrying this peasant woman I met in the woods. He seems to have forgotten the 24 dancing ladies and the whole thing. Uh, 
if our fairy alarms were going off when we met her, his apparently wasn't. Uh, and he doesn't seem to be thinking in that direction at all here. Um, what do you make of the answer? We spent some time looking at the answer to the question in Dame Ragnall. What does our undescribed lowly lady number two uh, emphasize? Christine? Oh, I was going to say that the answer has a dip- I feel like has a different meaning considering the context. How? Explain. Um, well, since he was like, like we were saying before, how this quest had relevance to the situation and that he had no regard for um, women's desires or just, yeah, just women's desires that this uh, suddenly, like, I don't know how to phrase it, but... Yeah, what did Dame Ragno emphasize in the other poem? What was the emphasis of the answer? And we can see it both in when she explains it and when Arthur gives it to Sir Gromer. Mac? It was uh, mostly it seemed about having uh, sovereignty over your husband. Yes. Mastery over your husband. And no matter how manly, no matter how fierce he is, that you would be the boss of him. Right? And we can see this again emphasized when Gawain makes the right choice. And his emphasis in the right choice. You are completely the boss of me. You rule my heart and my goods and everything about me. Uh, you know, I am bound to you. Loose me however you wish. That, those are the terms all the way through. Um, that she wants to be the master of him and to rule over the man. That's not the language here. Um, Does anyone have the passage? I want to look at the words. When he ex- proclaims the answer, what is it? It's a 1036 Good. Me liege ladi, generally, quod he, women desiring to have sovereignty, as well over her husband as her lover, and for to be in maestri him above. This is your most desire, though ye me killer. Well, that sounds similar, right? She wants to have mastery over her husband. As over her love. Right? She wants to have sovereignty. Just as she rules him when he is her lover, she wants to rule him when she is his wife. Um, this emphasizes not not only the, you know the transfer of the intimacy and the tenderness that you know you know, in a lot of these medieval romances the wife the wife and the husband don't have any you know love between them but they just have you know this marriage and the marriage cannot exist with, with love so yes. it's talking about the transfer of love and also it's bringing sort of a, 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 because it's using the a reference to the mastery as in love when they use that use of reference fealty, which is a two-way street. It also brings up a sort of, not equality, but, you know, reciprocity also. Yes. It is true that the authority in marriage was very much a one-way street legally in the Middle Ages. The woman was, a fit, was the property of the man and had no authority over him, and he had complete authority over her. Um, and also, as Jordan points out, in the Middle Ages, marriages were, all, I mean, almost entirely political and economic kinds of arrangements. Um, the concept of 
marriage as the sort of logical fruition of a, you know, Jane Austen-like romance is completely alien to the Middle Ages. In fact, um, marriage was seen as the enemy of love. Um, this is why almost all of the major love stories in the Middle Ages are adultery stories. Um, and you see a couple, but very, very few love stories in the Middle Ages which end in marriage. Some of them, but not very many. And, it, and, and those are kind of explicitly freakish. Um, and not everybody in the stories is comfortable with them. Um, but, uh, so yes, that's, that is one thing that she's introducing here in, in, in sort of talking about bridging that gap between the relationship as lovers and the relationship as husband and wife. Yeah. I, I was just thinking that the, during the courtship, the woman is the boss. Yeah. And so the wife of Bath is kind of conveying the idea that they always want their husbands to be like lovers, not like husbands. Yeah, yeah, because there is a huge difference between the lover who is swearing fealty to you and serving you and doing all things for you and the husband who owns you and is in charge of you. Um, it's a radical, radical shift. But as we've been pointing out as well, and I want to come back and look at more closely, the language of this and the emphasis in the answer is clearly related to the context. Let's go back to the rape. I want to look at the language there. Uh, Starting at 882. And so befell it that that this King Arthur had in his hus a lusty bachelor. Uh, Lusty just means um, full of vim. uh, And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean lustful in the modern sense. Lust just means uh, desire or enthusiasm in fairly general terms. Um, Religious writers in Middle English, for instance, will talk about your lust for God and how you must have great lust for God. That doesn't mean what the word lust now means. Uh, As is true of many English words, the word has become increasingly specialized over time and now doesn't mean nearly, it doesn't have nearly the breadth of meaning that it used to have. Anyway, okay. Had in his hus a lusty bachelor, that on a die came reading fro river, and happened that, alone as he was born, he saw a maid walking him before, of which maid anon, maugre her head, be very force, he raft her maidenhead, for which oppression was switch clamour and switch pursuit unto King Arthur, that dampened was this knicked for to be dead. Notice the emphasis here on his interaction with her. We get nothing from her. We don't even get her reaction. We get reaction of other people, right? The great pursuit uh, that comes to you know, people running to King Arthur uh, to, to, to complain and protest against this horrible action. Of which might anon, maugre her head, be very force, he raft her maidenhead. Raft is a pretty violent word. Like he, 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 he tore away, he, he stole from her. Uh, her maidenhead. Um, so she, he takes her virginity by force. No, she's, she's barely even a character, even in that description. It's all about him, what he did, and what he desired. Malgre her head. Uh, that's a very, a very popular Middle English expression. Um, against her head, against her will, no matter what she would say or do. Though we don't even get what she said. 
feel like maybe the narr the narrative was eager to get to this um, to the next situation, just sort of like yeah. So this horrible thing happened. This is why the next thing is about to happen. But more about the next thing. True, we don't get much of it, but but the, what we do get is pretty conspicuous. Um, this is one of the only examples I know of of a violent rape being described in medieval literature. Even like uh, stories like the King Pelinor one I was telling before. Even there, there's, I mean, the reason that they're all kind of, you know, like winking and nudging at King Pelinor uh, instead of condemning him is that the wife doesn't let on that she was especially unwilling uh, for this. I mean, the, when rape is discussed uh, in medieval literature, it is usually either sort of kidnapping or seduction. Um, almost never do we get a description of, uh, well, not almost never. It does happen on some occasions, but it's not very frequent um, that we get this, this image of, of actual forcible sex against her will. Um, and it's pretty striking. Be very force. And we have the emphasis on it there. Be very force. Hey, raft her maidenhead. Um, now, look at how he talks when, uh, when his new wife steps up. Um, he makes his declaration. Um, And then she steps forward and says, um, okay, he promised to give me whatever he wanted, whatever I wanted, rather. Now I insist that he marries me. Um, line 1058, he responds, This knicht answered, alas, and while away, he wot reeked well that switch was me behest, for God is love as chase a new request. Tackle me, God, and let me body go. Tackle me, God, and let me body go. What does it sound like? A rape. A rape. It's a, it's a, we don't get what the woman said before, but that might have been it, right? She might well have said something quite like that, right? Dick, rob me, whatever, but please let my body alone, right? And now he's in that position. This is the closest we can get to a complete exact reversal of this. Because as we described before, when you're married, you are obligated, legally <laughs> obligated to consummate that marriage. Um, so she, in fact, has him at her will and is compelling him with as much, you know, it's not be very force, exactly, but again, the language he uses <laughs> makes it sound almost like that. Um, so the, 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 the closeness of the reversal here, again, really emphasizes, I think, the relevance of this situation to that answer, which has just come, right? Which comes right before things are turned around here, right? Um, and as we were suggesting before, demonstrates the extent to which he's still not really getting this. He's still not really processing this. Other thoughts? Other thoughts on that? It does give us a different context for this answer to this question, Right? Because we've seen a kind of maestria, a kind of sovereignty, which is very direct and very ugly. He claims sovereignty and maestria. He, he, he takes maestria over this poor woman that he meets in the road. Can you think of the, 
the language even in the previous poem and the way in which, looking back on it, uh, you know, it, it, like about that night be, you know, the manliness of the night and be he never so fierce and all that stuff, right? Well, that language would be very sort of pointedly appropriate here, right? You know, well, yeah, he's shown his fierceness. He's shown his manliness, I guess, in his complete disregard for her. Um, and so it seems as if what we have here is just a reversal of that, right? What women most desire, she has told him, the ugly woman has told him, is to be in sovereignty above, her, above their husbands. Now, I'm going to do that to you. This is payback. This is the final phase of your punishment for what you did. It's this sort of elegant poetic justice. Now your chickens are coming home to roost, my friend. And no matter how manly you think you are, now I have mastery over you. And I'm going to hold you in bond, just like Gawain said, and all that stuff. Right? I mean, this sounds like the setup there. Jordan? It's actually, I, I think, because of the different emphasis in the answer's language, it, it sort of breaks the situation where he's done this horrible thing. And not only is, um, it, is he getting his life back, but also the idea that, that you know, the, the context of the, the sovereignty implies that he's her lover. I mean, there's it, not only a, you know, I'm going to let you live, I'm going to give you my love kind of implication in that answer. Yeah. Yeah, and we see her quickly talking like that. Um, when, she act, when, when we see them together as a married couple, um, she doesn't act like, no, I am your punishment and your scourge, right? She's not, uh, you know, she's like, so, dear husband, my love, let's to bed, right? And off they go. And she's very cheerful, though he is not. And we get some uh, marvelous Chaucerian descriptions of him wallowing and sort of tossing back and forth in bed and, and deeply unhappy with the situation. Um, but yes, Jordan, I agree. We have her acting as if not like this is, this is a sentence that's being passed against you, but see, look, we're now in an ideal love relationship, right? with all of the wonderful dynamics of the courtly love situation, yet rendered permanent by marriage and your perfect submission to me, this is going to be great. Uh, except he hates it. And of course, the way in which the, the objections that he makes are also objections that would be made in a courtly love situation too. He would never have taken her as his lady not only because she's loathly, but also because she's poor and old. Both of those things would render her unqualified for love, according to the technical rules of courtly love. And most people would have agreed with him, like with, in, in saying what the fairy king said about Orfeo and Herodias, that they don't fit. They're a sorry couple. It's not suitable for them to be together. Now, his statements of that are extremely abrasive and rude and show that he has not really changed at all, at least not yet, in his consideration of other people. But, uh, but objectively speaking, if we can ignore that tone, he does kind of have a point, and other people would agree with that point within that context. 
I didn't talk about the long self-indulgent digression that the wife of Bath takes uh, to expand upon the foibles of women and to refute the scandalous accusation that women really, really like to keep secrets and be trusted for their integrity. That is complete nonsense, the wife of Bath assures us. Women can't keep secrets to save their lives. Uh, And she goes out of her way to tell a story to illustrate this important principle. Um, We'll come back to that next time a little bit. But I promise in advance we're not really going to do justice to it. Uh, If you really want to, to see how that fits better... Next spring, Chaucer class, we'll look at the whole thing and see how this fits with the Wife of Bath's character. But, but we'll come back to it a little bit next time anyway. Okay, for next time, read the rest of the Wife of Bath's tale. No, seriously, read the whole second half. Look, I know that most of the second half of this poem is a long and seemingly irrelevant moral sermon that the ugly wife preaches to her ex-rapist husband on their wedding night. I know that you will probably be tempted to stop paying attention, and that you will likely just be wondering when she's going to stop nattering on and let him make his climactic moral choice already. However, I want to challenge you on this. Pay attention to what she actually says in her sermon. Trust me, it's relevant. Really. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.